Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Our guest today is Brian Clegg, a distinguished writer of popular books on science. Brian is our first guest from across the pond, and he is here to discuss his most recent book, Dice World. Brian, I just wanted to say that I enjoyed reading this book immensely. It covers mathematics, physics, philosophy, economics, even some stuff in uh, into telepathy and things like that. It was a fascinating book. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Brian, I think that the listeners would enjoy about hearing about your background, how you became a writer, and in particular, what led you to write Dice World. Well, I originally studied physics at university and uh, went to work at British Airways, uh, where I was working in operations research, which is uh, really a, a sort of a form of applied maths, trying to sort out problems uh, using mathematics. And I've always been interested in writing. I did a bit of writing in my spare time when I was at BA, but I really wanted to get into it more full time. And when I left BA, uh, I was starting to write professionally. Uh, and I guess I'm coming back to my roots in terms of the science that for me, explaining science, making it uh, science and math, making it, making it accessible is something that's very important to me and something that I feel uh, you know, I can really get a lot out of. Brian, I can certainly relate to that because I'm a teacher and a writer myself. And I think that one of the most important things you can do in either, actually in both areas, is to try to take ideas and explain them in a way that a lot of people can understand them. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy, Dice World. And by the way, what got you to write Dice World in particular? Well, I I think just... Probability, statistics, randomness, they're just ideas that that are really interesting. And also it's something that a lot of people have trouble getting their head around, uh, you know, that we we struggle with understanding aspects of of probability. It's always taking us by surprise. So that that fun element almost of it, that that it, it catches us out so often. Yeah, it took Einstein by surprise, too, because one of the things that you do is you sort of highlight his well-known quote that he didn't believe that God played dice with the universe. But of course, to a very large extent, he does. Anyway, how do you feel that the search for patterns, which you start off your book with, impact both science and our lives? Well, in terms of our lives, it's really how we relate to the world around us. Uh, we, we couldn't actually learn everything each time afresh. We have to get some basic ideas of patterns and apply those to the world. So say every time you want to switch on a, a light, you don't have to learn how to use a light switch. New, you have that basic pattern of how it works. You go there, you press it, and it works, hopefully. Um, and I guess science, in a way, is, is a sort of... Uh, is it's taking that same approach but making it more codified so that you, you you are looking for patterns in the universe if literally there was no pattern in the universe if everything was totally random then there could be no science because we could, we could never explain anything or predict anything because there would be no rules there would be no way of knowing what's going to happen next my guess is that if there were no patterns in the universe we wouldn't be here discussing this because there would be no us <laughs> that's true um 
Anyway, one of the things that uh, I've always been fascinated by patterns because, of course, I, I teach math. There was a wonderful article in Science Magazine a number of years ago by Professor Lynn Steen, who referred to mathematics as a science of patterns. And I think that's one of the aspects of mathematics that has always appeared to always appealed to me is that you get a lot of patterns in mathematics and then joy of joys, those patterns that you see in mathematics relate to the real world and help explain it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's very much uh, a, a case of if we want to understand the world, we've got to find patterns, we've got to find uh, aspects that uh, do apply. I guess that's why math is so central to science that we, we couldn't do science without it because it, it's, our, it's the main tool for understanding those patterns. Yeah, I think also one of the things that you touch on in your book is that we sometimes, to use an American expression, get faked into the popcorn machine by thinking that uh, that's a basketball expression. The American right. listeners will understand it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we'll explain it to the British listeners. But anyway, the idea is that sometimes we see patterns when they're not actually there. And I can remember um, I can remember seeing the picture of this, uh, I think it was windblown sand formation on Mars that everybody called the face on Mars. And obviously it's, you know, it's not something that a primitive culture erected on Mars like they did statues on Eastern Island. It's just our ability to see patterns where there are none. Yeah. Uh, and the whole, you know, um, we spend a lot of time when we're young seeing patterns that aren't there. We see the bogeyman hiding in the dark uh, in our bedroom um, uh, and, and also it's happened really throughout history in terms of, of culture that, um, you know, uh, that if something goes wrong, uh, say if se several people in the village have their cattle go sick, in medieval times they would have blamed it on the local witch or whatever. They would see a pattern that really wasn't the right thing, wasn't the explanation, but they're so desperate to find a pattern that they will blame it on something. These days we may well blame phone masts, uh, uh, mobile uh, cell phone masts or, or uh, the, the nearest nuclear power plant or something for patterns of illness uh, where they may be purely randomly occurring. Because the interesting thing about randomness is, is that we, we sort of kind of expect random things to all to be spread out evenly, but actually they come in clusters, they come in lumps. Uh, it, it's, it, it would be really weird, actually, if they were all spread out nice and evenly. But as soon as we see a cluster, as soon as we things, see things coming together, we assume there must be a cause, there must be a pattern behind it. Yeah, a friend of mine pointed out that this clustering phenomenon is one of the things that helps you to detect um, when data has been faked because people know that they ought to, when they're presenting data to uh accord with a particular distribution, what they tend to do is they tend to spread out the data so that it appears very even and they discount the clustering phenomenon which real data takes. That's right. In fact, if you ask somebody just to come up with a string of, of random numbers, they just won't put enough repeats in it because they, they kind of assume randomness means jumping around always. Whereas actually, of course, sometimes you will get the same number coming up twice in a, in a random sequence. Yeah. At the start of the book, you spend some time distinguishing between classical randomness and chaotic randomness. What are the differences between the two and how does each have an impact on science? I ought to say straight away that these aren't sort of official terms. They're really ones I just made up to, to distinguish between 
two types of things that, that appear to be random. Uh, so by classical randomness, I mean where something is literally, if you like, randomly occurring. So uh, I, I guess the, the standard might be uh, if you have a perfect uh, set of dice, so you, you throw the dice and it could be uh, any number, each with an equal value. Uh, and it's totally random which one comes up if you had a perfect dice. I mean, a real real dice are a bit different because they're, they're physical objects. Um, so that's what I mean by classical randomness. Chaotic randomness is more like the, the kind of thing that why we have trouble with, say, weather forecasting, uh, where you've got a system that's very complicated. And in principle, if you knew every little bit of data, everything about that system, you could predict exactly what was going to happen. But in practice, the system is so complex and so interconnected that very small changes in the way things set off can result in very big differences. Uh, and that's the kind of thing I mean by chaotic randomness. So classical randomness is truly random, but actually we can often predict what's going to happen in a broad sense. So if you're throwing dice, you can predict how often, say, a six might come up. Chaotic randomness actually isn't truly random, but the fact is it's pretty well impossible to predict into the future because the system is just so complicated. I think your terms are very good, even though you may feel that you've invented them, because practically anybody with any sort of background will immediately know what you're talking about. And they're good for another reason, because the fact that you call it classical randomness sort of indicates to us that this has been studied some time and chaotic randomness. The idea is that, you know, we have this idea of chaos as opposed to cosmos, which comes to us from uh, long ago, but these are unexpected type events. Anyway, you uh, referred to the fact that um, weather forecasting is exceptionally difficult. And you spent some time on this on, in the book. And as I recall, the first instance in which chaos really showed up was when Edward Lorenz, who was, a, I think, a meteorology professor at MIT, was working with computers in the early 1960s, probably even before you got into them with <laughs> uh, British Airways. And um, he ran into some very interesting situations. And perhaps you could tell our listeners about it and how it led to the uh, study of chaos. That, that's right. Lorenz had a, a very early computer model that was trying to predict how the weather would develop over time. And... Um, uh, uh, back then, typically, you get a printout of information out of the computer, um, and that was rounded. So basically, the computer was working with numbers to six decimal places, with, with six digits after the point in the decimal place. Um, and it printed out just to three decimal places. So it just lost the tiny little bit of detail at the end of each number. And he wanted to restart his computer partway through a process. And so he took the values from the printout, which, of course, weren't exactly the same values, but very, very similar, and put them in. And to his surprise, uh, really very quickly, that started to diverge from uh, the way his original run of the computer program had gone. So basically, just by making very small changes to those initial values, he found that it started going off in a totally different direction. Uh, and this is really where the whole of chaos theory comes from this idea that very small changes in initial conditions with this kind of system can result in very big changes in the future. And that's really why it is just so difficult to predict the weather beyond three, four, five days. Uh, in fact, frankly, by the time you get to 10 days, uh, 
you're in pretty well in guesswork territory. The, the, the models are actually worse than just saying what would the weather be like at this time of year in this climate. That's very interesting. And I think also one of the things that if there's one phrase that I think the majority of people might associate with chaos, it's the phrase the butterfly effect, which you may know was made into a movie a few years ago, although the movie didn't really deal with the butterfly effect that Lorenz was talking about. So what exactly was the butterfly effect that Lorenz was talking about? I think it came up in Jurassic Park as well. Um, This was from a paper that Lorenz wrote that was called Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? So we've got this idea that very small changes in the initial conditions can result in really big changes in the way the weather develops. And the suggestion was that just by a butterfly's wings flapping, that is moving air molecules around a little bit, and because of that, the starting position is very slightly different than it would be otherwise. And if you work through the system over time, then could, could that result in a change in weather somewhere else? As it happens, the particular example there is probably very unlikely, partly because butterflies' wings uh, are, are such a small effect that actually they can sort of be dampened down by local conditions. And also because tornadoes are, are relatively um, local in their origins. Uh, if it had been a hurricane, you might have had a better chance, but I suspect tornadoes unlikely. But the idea is basically there, a very small ch- uh, change in starting position, in this case, a butterfly flapping its wings, moves the air around, so things aren't quite the way we thought they were going to be, and the weather develops in a different way. Yeah, I was um, enthralled a few years ago when there was an article in Science Man pointed out that this idea of the butterfly effect applied even to the motion of planets because I think it was discovered in the late 1980s that somebody went through doing exactly the same thing with the orbits of the outer planets and they discovered that they were chaotic in exactly the same sense. Um, A million years from now, you won't know on which side of the solar system Neptune or Pluto will be from exactly the same reasons because you just can't tell now because they could be so close together you couldn't measure it and uh, millions of years from now they might be a solar system apart. It's just fascinating stuff. Um, Switching topics a little, what do you see as the connection between probability and statistics and how does this impact science? Well, you could think of probability, I I guess, as, as a measure of the likeliness of something happening. It's about chance. It's something that you might involve if you're you know, in a casino playing a game. Uh, you could work out the probability of drawing a particular card or the probability of a um, roulette wheel coming up with a particular number. So that, that's talking about chance. And statistics really uh, is a way of looking across a lot of different things happening at once. So uh, you might look at you know, originally statistics was about uh, states, about countries. The word statistic it comes from the same origin as the word state. Uh, so it was looking at things like how, um, you know, a country's uh, uh, economics work, how the it, population changes. Uh, but basically any large system, what you've got is uh, lots of little elements involved in that. Um, and the statistics let, gives you an overview of what's happening. Probability tells you, you know, what's the chances of something happening to an individual object in there if, if it's uh, that type of uh, collection of things. It, it obviously varies. Uh, a, a good example, I guess, is if you've got a, a box of gas, you'd say that uh, you could look at the probability 
of, of a particular molecule having a, um, a particular speed, a particular temperature. Uh, but overall, we use statistics to look at the picture of the gas as a whole. Uh, it won't tell us about the individual molecules, but it gives a good, us a good picture of the whole. I remember when I was growing up, there was a book called One, Two, Three, Infinity by George Gamow. I don't know whether or not you've ever happened to uh, read it. But one of the things that he did early on, because you brought up the topic of uh, the gases, I remember he asked what the probability was that all the gas molecules in the room could collect in the upper right-hand corner of the room and you'd suffocate. And this is pretty frightening stuff to see in a book on mathematics and physics, but it turned out to be 10 to the something like 300 quadrillion. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and it would take that many seconds for that to happen even once. And since the universe had only existed for about 10 to the 17 seconds, Gamow took pains to put his readers at ease pretty quickly after that calculation. But nonetheless, it turns out that um, um, statistics, which... I just briefly like to detour. You you mentioned that statistics was discussed with the uh, originally arose from the study of um, uh, states, and you were uh, I re recall in your book that you were looking at something like statistics that were discovered for you know or at least compiled for population surveys. But I always thought that statistics got its formal start with um, Snow's studies of the uh, cholera outbreak in London in the 1850s. But maybe I, was, uh, maybe I was misled on that. Maybe that was just a particular application of the use of statistics and patterns in order to discover um, how, uh, what was causing the cholera outbreak. I, I think, I mean, you know, statistics in terms of literally here are the statistics, just as we say, you know, what, what's the population of a country, all that kind of thing. The term was used earlier on when referring to that. But I think the example of snow uh, finding the, the pump uh, the water pump where the cholera was originating was one of the first examples of, of using a, you know, a, it is a mathematical tool to discover something. So I think both are true in a sense. Um, you also mentioned, you know, getting back to the um, molecules of gas in a container and studying them statistically, that gave rise to the study of uh, statistical mechanics, which I think has a big impact on thermodynamics. And perhaps you'd like to take a little bit of time and discuss the connection between those. Yeah, well, thermodynamics uh, originally was, was, you've got to take yourself back to the steam age, uh, you know, to the early days. Uh, of steam engines, and uh, it really came out of, an, of a need to build a better steam engine, to understand how a steam engine worked, how a heat engine worked, how something took heat and turned it into work. Um, and that, that's really the origins of thermodynamics. And, and originally, it, it wouldn't have been considered uh, as something that involves statistics. Uh, but if you think about something like a gas, and, and nearly always you are dealing with something like a gas at some point, in thermodynamics, um, then as we've already mentioned, you, you, you can't actually follow each individual molecule. Uh, and when you're, when you're measuring the temperature of a gas, say, what you're really looking at is uh, the kinetic energy of the molecules, how fast, uh, how much energy they move around with. Um, and because of that, when you're taking the big picture, you have to take a statistical view. Some will be a bit quicker, some will be a bit slower. Uh, and the only way of handling them is to take to a statistical, statistical view. So that's really how it came into thermodynamics in the first place. 
Thermodynamics is a particularly interesting subject because one of the things that I've always enjoyed about science and, and mathematics too, but science to a greater extent than mathematics, is that science allows you to come up with basically any theory that you like, but you have to test it. You have to subject it to the. Uh, you have to subject it to the real world, and the real world is the ultimate arbiter of whether or not you've got a good theory. And I remember, I always liked the phlogiston theory, possibly just because of the word. Um, but nonetheless, here's an example of a very reasonable theory on how things work. And I think you could actually, you know, as I recall, you could actually make some very reasonable predict, uh, predictions with the phlogiston theory. But sooner or later, the idea of phlogiston as a substance got superseded by the idea of heat as energy. Yes, that, that, that's right. I mean, the phlogiston was basically the, the idea that um, when something burnt, uh, say, for instance, we, we think of it uh, as um, giving off heat, uh, producing energy. Uh, but they saw it as phlogiston as, as, as being actually a substance uh, that we could, you could have less of or more of in the body. Uh, and that w resulted in the, the production of that energy. As you say, it, it worked basically. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, if you go back to the, um, you're talking about the, the solar system, uh, the, the, the old uh, Ptolemaic model of the solar system uh, before we had the idea of uh, the Earth going around the sun, the original picture where the sun went around the Earth. It, they did get it to work. They put together uh, enough complexity into the system to actually be able to make it work but the fact is uh, the real system as we understand it where the earth goes around the sun actually makes things an awful lot simpler and sometimes it, what you result in uh, what science often does is make things simpler takes out something that wasn't necessary and that's what happened i guess with phlogiston yeah this is you know as I said, I'm uh, I'm a mathematician, but I have a love for science. And um, I, when I was in college, I started out trying to major in physics, but it was just not as easy for me as uh, as mathematics. And so I took the easy way out. But if I had it all to do over again, and I'm retiring in a year, I want to spend some time studying physics because it, to me, it was always amazing. I can remember seeing this from long ago and far away when. I grew up, there was an eclipse of the sun and the New York Times said when the eclipse of the sun would take place and when it would reach its maximum and what degree of this, what fraction of the sun would be obscured. And I thought it was just so wonderful that we could use mathematics in order to understand what um, the way the universe worked. And it turns out that um, it turns out that mathematics, especially the probability and statistics that you're studying in Dice World, turned out turned out to really be of primary importance in 20th century science when quantum mechanics started using probability to, to give a description of matter and forces. And I realize we could take interviews and libraries on this subject, but nonetheless, um, it would help if uh, you could get our listeners started on this topic. Okay, so quantum mechanics, what you're looking at here is um, matter, forces, things seen at the very small level. Uh, so atoms, subatomic particles, uh, they're all quantum uh, particles. And what we mean by that really is, is that the, the physics of the way be they behave is different uh, to the way we see things on the macro level, on, on the ordinary uh, level of things. And specifically um, with these 
quantum particles, probability comes into their very nature. Um, that if, for instance, you th throw a ball uh, Newton, using Newton's laws, we, we can in principle work out exactly where the ball is going to be in uh, a certain period of time after you've thrown it, assuming there's nothing too complicated going on around it. Um, but with a quantum particle, it's totally different because over time, the places it might be grow effectively. There's, there's a, 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 something called the Schrodinger wave equation that basically tells us what the chances are of it being in different places. So instead of saying it is in a place, effectively, it is spread out over a, a range. And we all we have until we actually make a measurement and find the thing is a range of probabilities of where it might be. Probability is actually at the heart uh, of what it is and where it is. And that, that's what Einstein was so upset about. He was determined that there should be some sort of hidden information that t would tell you where it really was if you could only find it. Uh, but it, it turns out, as far as we can tell, that Einstein was wrong on this one. That's a rare instance. In fact, when Einstein said he'd made a mistake, it turned out later on that he hadn't really made a mistake and it wasn't a mistake at all. So finding Einstein in, uh, in error is really something that's uh, pretty surprising. But I recall that there was uh, a quote by, I think, Heisenberg, something to the effect that when you study, uh, when you look at tables and chairs and automobiles, you're seeing things in the real world. But when you go into the atomic uh, realm, even though you're seeing things about in the real world, they're not really things in the sense that we think of things. They're very, very different type of entities. And we haven't really been able to really characterize exactly what these entities are. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, because it's something that I always found at least maybe it's begging the question, but at least it's something we can work with. Well, I, I, mean, I guess the, the fundamental thing is if you look at something like, I don't know, an electron, for instance, one of the, the fundamental particles, something we're familiar with as uh, electrons, uh, uh, the picture we often have is, is of them sort of zooming around an atom, uh, a bit like planets going around the sun. That, that picture is actually wrong. It's, it's an old-fashioned picture. But those are the things we're talking about. They're also obviously involved in electricity. Um, if you look at something like an electron... Um, what they found was that this is something that behaves both as if it's a particle and as if it's a wave. And uh, they, they came up in that Copenhagen is basically just a, a set of uh, rules, if you like, for, for understanding. It, it's, not, it's not really physics per se. But what it's saying is uh, that they have this sort of complementary nature that um, a particle can behave as it, uh, like an electron as if it is a wave and it can behave as if it is a particle. Uh, it just don't, doesn't, won't do them both at the same time. At any one time, when you do something with it, it will behave one way or another. Uh, and really all, what you're trying to do here is um, apply some math. There's good math that predicts exactly what's going to happen with quantum particles. In fact, it's probably the most accurate uh, mathematics we have in all of science in terms of the predictions. Uh, I think uh, Richard Feynman, uh, famous quantum physicist, said something to the effect of uh, we, we can predict things so accurately. Uh, it's as if you could uh, predict what the distance between New York and San Francisco was to the width of a human hair. That's how accurate the models actually match 
reality. But the fact is the models are weird. They're very difficult to, un to understand in terms of they don't match our picture of reality, but they work very, very well. Yeah, this is one of the things that we're sort of facing in, uh, in both science and mathematics. As we get deeper and deeper into the subject, we find that even though we're able to make more and more precise calculations and predict more and more what's going to happen at some sort of fundamental level, maybe we don't understand anything at all. And I, I, I you know, I can remember Feynman making this quote about uh, when, when people were looking for this theory of everything, they asked Feynman about that. And he said, well, maybe there's a theory of everything, but maybe we just have to do is just keep peeling off levels of reality like an onion. And I thought that was, you know, that's sort of, you know, to a large extent what science is. We're just continually finding new levels of reality. When you brought up the idea of the simultaneous nature of an electron as a uh, as both a particle and a wave, doesn't though that go back to the idea that light is both wave and particles as well? That, that's right, uh, because if you go far enough back, Newton thought light was particles, and everybody thought he was proved wrong. Um, with various experiments uh, that came up in the, the 19th century um, that showed that light definitely behaved as if it was a, a wave. But in fact, the whole reason for quantum theory starting really uh, was uh, Einstein's understanding uh, that light actually does behave as particles that in something called the photoelectric effect where light coming in generates electricity it would only work the way it does if light was a particle. Um, and that's the, if you like, the strangeness of this. One of the strange things about quantum particles is that, yes, they are particles, but also they behave as if there are waves. Uh, there are ways of looking at it. Um, uh, Feynman had a, a picture that really worked with particles, um, but that gave these particles, like uh, you might imagine, a little clock that's going round that's fixed to them, and, and that gave it its wave-like behaviour. Um, but the fact is, really, they're not really either of these things. It, it's not a particle, it's not a wave, it's just a, a, a quantum entity, uh, and it's just useful for us to think of it as if it's a particle, as if it's a wave, because that helps with some of the ways we try to understand it. In reading your book, one of the things that I found really insightful was your description of quantum tunneling. And what I was surprised to read was that quantum tunneling apparently violates the speed of light limit. Could you tell us a little bit about what quantum tunneling is and why it's so important? Well, quantum tunneling is basically a quantum particle getting from one side of a barrier to the other uh, that it shouldn't be able to get through. Um, and if you remember that this idea that a quantum particle over time effectively spreads out, that it becomes a, a series of probabilities, eventually the probability of where it might be will include the other side of a barrier. Um, and what it means is that a quantum particle can come along and jump from one side of a barrier to the other without passing through the space in between. Um, and this can be a physical barrier uh, in terms of um, something that's made... Um, with uh, uh, with uh, <coughs> sorry, uh, uh, my brain's gone blank. Uh, with, with, with a <laughs> with a physical device, or it can be, if you like, a sort of virtual barrier, uh, something like uh, two particles repelling each other, uh, and and that's really where it gets very interesting from the point of view of our survival, uh, quantum tunneling, uh, because that's how effectively the sun works. The sun needs 
the positively charged particles to get close enough together to fuse, and they're repelling each other. They, and even in the pressure and temperature in the sun, they can't actually get close enough together for the fusion reaction to take place and it's only because they make this jump through the barrier the barrier in this case being the repulsion uh, that they manage to fuse but the, the aspect of the speed of light is it's a little bit of a trick but basically the tunneling time is zero so if you imagine a, a little particle moving along say at the speed of light imagine a photon um, it then tunnels through a barrier and then does another bit at the speed of light if you take that whole journey then it's actually travelled faster than light because the middle section took no time at all. And that's been demonstrated with, uh, with uh, for instance, um, there's a, a German physicist who's sent uh, Mozart's 40th Symphony through a system using this where, where the, the music travels over four times the speed of light. Uh, but I say it is a little bit of a trick because it only happens of a very short distance. You can't actually do anything with this, uh, this faster than light effect. Good choice of music, because I'd a lot rather he sent Mozart's 40th in rap music <laughs> faster than the speed of light. Um, anyway, um, getting back a little to thermodynamics, one of the things that I wanted to discuss is the idea of the second law of thermodynamics, because I can remember reading... Um, uh, uh, reading the two cultures when I was in college. And one of the things that the author said about the two cultures, he was discussing the difference between the scientific culture and the liberal arts culture, is that scientists generally know Shakespeare and Mozart. They probably even know the 40th Symphony. But in general, if you ask a liberal arts individual, what is the second law of thermodynamics, they'll look at you a little blank. And the second law of thermodynamics is as important to science as, say, Mozart is to music as Shakespeare is to literature. That's right, and it's important for that matter to, to life. Um, all the second law of thermodynamics really says, at its simplest, is that heat will move from a hotter part of a system to a cooler part of a system, which seems almost obvious, so obvious that you don't need to state it. Uh, but the fact is, as you start to use that, it's what's happening really when anything changes. Um, and as a result of it, what typically happens is uh, scientists would say uh, entropy increases. And ent entropy is basically a measure of the orderedness of something. The more, the more, the higher the entropy, the, the more disorder there is in a system. Uh, and the idea is if you've got a system that's totally enclosed, that nothing else is influencing, entropy typically will either stay the same or increase. Uh, so things get more disordered. And, and if you go back to that picture we had about a box of gas, uh, you mentioned all, all the uh, all the atoms, go, uh, molecules heading off into one corner. If we think of a slightly different box of gas, one that's uh, split in two, hot, hot gas on one side, cold gas on the other, and then we take out the partition and they start to mix, then we start with a fairly simple system. We know it's hot on the left, cold on the right. After a bit of time, we can see that the mix, some of the hot molecules will be on one side, some on the other. So it's a more disordered state. The entropy has increased as heat's moving from the hotter part of the system to the cooler part. And although, it, as I say, it's a very simple thing in a way, it's actually at the heart of practically everything that changes in the universe. So, you know, any, anything that's happening in the universe, it's, it's a very fundamental aspect of physics. 
One of the things that I found intriguing in your book was that I thought you had a very good explanation of something that I never really understood all that well, namely the idea of Maxwell's demon. And um, it's not a demon in the sense of one of these science fiction horror films, but it's a very interesting concept, and perhaps you could spend a little time explaining it. Yeah, well, I, I guess we're, we're working with that same box. So if you, if you imagine that, that box I mentioned uh, that can have a partition in the middle, the idea is that we've got a, a nice mixed bit of uh, gas, so it's all had a chance to mix up and, and be pretty much the same. So at this stage, um, you've got hotter molecules and colder molecules. And remember, temperature is just a measure of the kinetic energy, so some are moving faster than others, zooming around inside the box. Uh, we stick a partition in the middle, and it's got a little door in it, and that door is operated by a demon. Uh, and as you say, it, it, this isn't something out of... Uh, uh, a horror film, it's really just uh, uh, some sort of intelligent creature that can make a decision because what it's going to do is open the door when uh, a hot molecule is going from left to right and it's going to close it if a hot molecule is trying to go from right to left. And over time, what you'll have is just from this thing opening and closing the door at the right time, it'll build up hot molecules on the right side colder ones on the left and so what it's doing is actually reducing enter entropy and this isn't supposed to happen uh, because so the, the second law of thermodynamics says that entropy stays the same or increases in a closed system and this little demon is managing somehow to overcome that and for a long time it was a serious problem how could something do that part of the problem here the devil if you like the devil in the demon is in the detail uh, because you've got to think about how could uh, that little thing know what the energy of a particle is. It can't just psychically know as a particle coming towards it, this is a hot one. It would have to make a measurement of some sort. And it was thought for a while uh, that that was the catch, that the fact that it was making the measurement was the problem. Uh, it's actually turned out to be a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, and there are still some doubts, to be honest. But uh, one of the interesting things about it is it seems that um, you can't forget things without... Uh, an increase in entropy uh, and that basically uh, without using energy and um, the demon effectively eventually has to start forgetting things it can't remember everything because it hasn't got an infinite memory so that that's one of the sort of possible get outs but it, it's a totally fascinating idea also fascinating is the idea that the second law of thermodynamics leads to something called the heat death of the universe um, could you explain that a little well this assumes that the universe is going to get if you like bigger and bigger forever that, that as far as we're at the moment uh, space is expanding and, and that expansion is getting faster uh, this is the the dark energy you might sometimes have heard of as driving it um, and as it expands basically uh, everything is thinning out and cooling if you take a sort of overall picture of the universe and if you imagine running this forward forever and uh, and a, a day so it's just going on and on and on everything's thinning out getting thinner and thinner the fact is that um, you are going to eventually get to a state where uh, everything has pretty well lost its energy it's getting to the, the lowest possible energy um, uh, and that there really is nothing happening in the universe um, and I mean, we're looking at billions and billions of years ahead of course if you're thinking of that uh, but the interesting thing about it is um, that the assumption is that the universe can't sort of reverse because if it did, uh, it would actually have to 
decrease entropy. You'd have to be putting order back in, uh, in into what at the moment is a totally disordered universe, a totally chaotic universe. Um, and the interesting thing is, of course, that because the second law of thermodynamics is statistical, so it's only on the whole it will happen, but not necessarily always. In principle, the, if we've got an infinitely long period of time to play with, then you could get that state. You remember your, your gas all disappearing into the corner of the room. You could get um, a galaxy reforming in principle if you've got an infinite period of time. Uh, so one of the interesting questions there really is, and that we don't know, is does time have a finite limit? Uh, if time literally goes on to forever, then we may well be able to get out of this idea of the universe dying in this way. Well, along those lines, I actually had the opportunity to, if not resolve that question, I had a brief conversation or an email interchange with Freeman Dyson, who said that it was the common belief of the physics community that the universe was infinite in both extent and time. And my feeling is he knows better than I, so I'm certainly willing willing to accept that. One of the things that I also enjoyed about your book is you touch upon some topics that you don't ordinarily find in a science book. And there are topics which have some degree of interest to me. And one of the things that you talked about is the idea that randomness plays a role in misunderstanding telepathy. And I think our listeners would find that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, this actually came, funnily enough, that my, my next book after this one is something called Extrasensory, which is looking at the, the is there any science behind things like telepathy? So I, I was already researching it when I was writing Dice World, and that, that's really where the opportunity came in to go into, into this aspect. Um, and what it's looking at here is a lot of the scientific testing of something like telepathy has been statistical. Uh, so it's been looking uh, across uh, a huge number of repeated experiments uh, and looking for very small effects, very small changes that if telepathy was operating would enable you to get slightly away from randomness. Uh, and a classic example is one where you have people in two rooms. Uh, one person is shown uh, a randomly selected playing card and has to project that image to the other person, and who then has to say, what's the card going to be? And they came up with, I think it was in the early 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, with a device uh, which it was thought would would make this totally foolproof, uh, because basically it generated a random number that told the operator which playing card uh, to show the person uh, to do the test with. But the problem was, imagine, say, there were just 10, I think there were just 10 cards in the example, it wasn't a full pack, um, that this device would come up with, say, a number between 1 and 10 randomly, and the operator would then uh, light up the appropriate uh, card for the person to try to project telepathically. The problem was the operator would see a number, and if that number came up twice in a row, they would think the machine hadn't worked properly, and they would operate it again to get a new number. So we're back to this idea that people don't really understand randomness. They don't expect repeats in a random sequence. And because of that, what they'd effectively done is reduced the uh, probability of a card coming up from being 1 in 10 to 1 in 9 because they eliminated the one that had come before. And equally, the person guessing would tend not, if they were literally just guessing, would tend not to guess the same one twice in a row. So again, they got to one in nine. So you, what should have been a one in 10 probability was turned into a one in nine probability. And all that doesn't, doesn't sound much. That was enough to bias the experiment to make it look as if people were 
having t uh, telepathic experience, where actually it was just coming out of the statistics. Oh, yeah. And also, if you conducted enough of those experiments, so that if you had tens of uh, thousands or tens of thousands of trials in which you were actually doing it on a one in nine basis rather than a one in 10 basis, you'd be a huge number of standard deviations away from the mean. And of course, you'd think that telepathy was taking place here. So um, you got to be very, very careful with your experimental design. That's one of the things that I've learned about statistics. Um, you got to be, uh, you know, there are an awful lot of statistically based conclusions that are unfortunately based on failed methodology, which is sort of unfortunate. That's right. And of course, when you're thinking of things like telepathy, the people testing them were often psychologists whose math perhaps wasn't quite as good uh, as a physicist or a mathematician. Uh, and because of that, there are numerous examples in the history of people trying to uh, look for telepathy of the uh, misunderstanding of probability of statistics generating a, a fake result. Um, towards the end of the book, you start discussing Bayesian statistics. Um, what exactly is Bayesian statistics and why is it so important? It's really a, a, a method that allows uh, you to take, uh, I guess you could say, a statistical measurement or, or, or to work out the chances of something happening where you have in, incomplete information and where you can modify your result based on any extra information you can get. Uh, it's one of these things where actually seeing it happen it makes it simpler than trying to describe it. I mean, in the book, I have a, a slightly bizarre but simple example uh, where I start with saying, uh, I have a dog, and what's the probability that that dog's a golden retriever? Um, and my starting point might be, okay, how many golden retrievers are there in the country compared to dogs? So I might say, I don't know, I, got, I don't know, can't remember what the probability was, but perhaps I have a chance of a one in 20 chance of having a golden retriever. But then I bring in some extra information, which in my case was that I had a mug with a picture of a golden retriever on sitting on my desk. And the clever thing about Bayesian statistics is uh, it allows you to take one type of probability. So if I can work out what are the chances I've got that mug if my dog's a golden retriever, I can, it lets me turn it around and say, okay, then if I've got the mug, what's the chances that my dog is a golden retriever? Uh, and it's actually a very powerful tool. Uh, it's been suggested recently, for instance, that, that it, historians ought to be using it um, to look back. If you're looking at what's the chances that something really did happen in history, it, it's a very powerful tool to take what information you've got and say, what, what's the probability? What's our best guess whether or not this was really this really happened? Well, I know that Bayesian statistics plays a large role in forensic analysis. It's part mm -hmm. of paternity testing, for instance. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah, and um, uh, Bayes, uh, Bayes' law, it, very interesting idea from basically probability theory, but it's been incorporated with statistics and... I think that one of the things that I enjoyed about your book is that I didn't realize the extent to which it played a role in science as well. I think of Bayesian statistics as more sort of um, uh, uh, figuring out what disease you've got given a collection of symptoms and who's the likely father because those are uh, given a collection of uh, inherited traits by the child. But it turns out that it's much more all-encompassing than that. And something also that I enjoyed about your book is your 
willing to touch on things that I won't say where no scientist has gone before. But nonetheless, it's nice to see a discussion of the fact that a probabilistic description of physical phenomena can affect questions of determinism and free will. And that's probably a good topic on which to close this interview. So why don't you talk about that a little? Well, I think the interesting thing is, you know, if you look back, uh, coming out of Newton's laws, um, people started to think uh, that we were living, if you like, in a clockwork universe where everything was predictable. Um, and in fact, there, there was a French uh, mathematician in Laplace who specifically said if you had uh, a being with uh, a big enough intelligence that they could actually understand everything that was happening in the universe and with all the data available to them, they could basically predict the entire future. There would, would be no free will, there could be no free will, because everything would be determined step by step, methodically, in a clockwork fashion. Um, but what's come out really of uh, both uh, chaos theory and the fact that quantum mechanics shows us that at a fundamental level, the universe is based uh, to a degree on randomness, is that we aren't in a clockwork universe. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that there is such a thing as free will. Um, it doesn't actually instantly and magically make free will appear because we may still have no control over what's happening. If you think, say, you know, uh, over the randomness of a roulette wheel, it isn't uh, it doesn't have that sort of clockwork feel. In fact, that is, of course, mechanical, but that's slightly different. Um, but we can't, just because um, it, it has that randomness, it doesn't, we don't have any, it, you can't say the wheel has free will. And similarly, it doesn't necessarily give us free will just to have randomness at the base, but it does move us away from this clockwork picture and gives us a chance at least to act as if we had free will, whether or not it's really there. Well, I don't know whether or not you're married, but free will is also a function of whether or not you're married. Take it from someone who is. Uh, I am, and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, how can our listeners find out a little bit more about you and Dice World? You said that you're working on a new book, um, Extrasensory, but uh, could you give the website for Dice World and tell us how our listeners might be able to get in touch with you? Uh, well, the simplest thing is is my website, which is Brian Clegg, B-R-I-A-N-C-L-E-W. G.net, BrianClegg.net, uh, has all the information on all my books. Uh, it also has a link there to contact me, all the usual kind of Twitter and Facebook stuff as well. Um, so um, my email address is brian at brianclegg.net. Um, and I'd certainly love to hear from people. But as I say, that has all the information about Dice World uh, and about my other books as well. Um, are you planning on any other book after Extrasensory? Or do you have uh, uh, do you have a schedule of interviews in particular? Or you may be planning on coming over to the United States and give some talks or interviews. Or are you permanently based in England? I'm mostly over here, uh, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, I'd certainly love an opportunity to do it at some point. Um, in terms of other books, uh, yeah, the Extra Century actually is just coming out now because as it happens they're both Dice World and Extra Century with different publishers and they, they happen to have brought them out really very close to each other so that, that should be around in the shops anytime now um, and I'm currently working on, on a book uh, looking at uh, well uh, I guess space exploration so the, the final frontier if you like thinking about what how that 
can really work in the future, whether it's economically possible uh, and all that sort of good stuff. But I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm a sort of generation who's been brought up with Star Trek. It was it was on when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I stayed up as a little kid to watch the, you know, the Apollo 11 moon landing. Uh, and I, I, I don't know about you, but I really feel that even though there aren't necessarily good scientific reasons for going out there and exploring the universe, that really we ought to be out there again fairly soon. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And not only did I stay up as a teenager watching those shows, but I also stayed up all night to watch Voyager telecasts back from uh, the planets as they went by. They were on public television here, and they were among the most fascinating television I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, I I think... We, we need to get people out there again. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Brian, thank you so much for appearing on our show. Okay, thanks for the invitation. It's been great. 